Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership with an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Angular Insights, breaking into your first enterprise IT account with Ed Sim. We have a great session planned for you today. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to Ed for doing this. Ed's been a friend and a friend to the firm for a long time. Ed is the founder of Bold Start Ventures, which is a probably the leading B2B infrastructure firm on the East Coast, one of the top ones in the U.S., more importantly, Ed's been a real friend and lighthouse as we've thought about you know, what we want to do at Angular and when I was out raising the fund. So first of all, Ed took the time to meet with me and give me some tips on raising a fund before I even had a fund. And that means a lot, as you all know, as founders. And then in addition, when LPs would ask me, what do you want Angular to be? I would just, at some point, I just started saying, well, we just want to be the bold start of Europe. That just was the easiest way to explain what we're trying to do. Ed's built a fund that really has a focus, deep tech, enterprise, B2B sales. They're known for putting out great content, very thoughtful investments. I'm privileged to be co-invested with Ed personally on two investments, Sneak and Front. He's also an investor in, in companies you've probably heard of like Superhuman, Big ID, Customer, Security Scorecard, Fortress IQ, and many, many more. Great. And Gil, thank you so much. Gil, I've enjoyed working with you and look forward to doing a lot more. And as I like to say, in New York, we feel like it's a great bridge between Europe, Israel, and the West Coast. And the other wonderful thing about being in New York is that we have 73 Fortune 500 companies, which means I and my team end up spending a lot of time with IT executives, heads of cloud, heads of infrastructure, CISOs, et cetera. So this topic on breaking into your first enterprise IT account is quite near and dear to our hearts because we spend a lot of time with the founders, wherever they are, helping them kind of land that first one. So I thought this topic could be a little dry, so I thought I'd liven it up and make it a little fun. And so the one thing I like to say is that every successful company that is scaling today had a first customer, and that could be you. And today I'd like to just explore just ideas or things that we think about. I mean, this is by no means a fully exhaustive approach to it, but just some ideas about how we think about the world. So I want you to just take a quick look and read this slide. This is a friend of mine, Marty Broadback. I've known for 20 years. He used to be the CTO at Pfizer, CTO at Shutterstock. He's the CTO at Priceline now. Just hosted him on one of our webinars recently. And here's the key is that if you have no customer, you can still get a first customer. And if you see Marty's point here, in certain cases, zero customers are actually better because you have a chance to shape and mold the product based on a set of requirements that comes for your company. So my point here is that everyone can be a first customer. You just have to find the right one. And we'll kind of explore that right now. I always love this slide. You know, Wonder Woman's a super powerful figure, but the way we think about it is a lot of times we meet with technical founders, because that's what we really invest in is hardcore technical founders who are focused on product vision. They usually think about themselves. It's about my tech and this great thing that I'm building. But I think the most important thing that you have to think about before you even reach out to your first enterprise IT customer is, you know, what problem are you solving? Who are you solving it for? And then, you know, how do I discover the pain and the priority of that pain in the organization? And when I say this, 
It's not just I'm looking at a bank. It's not just I'm looking at a developer. It has to be at a super, super granular level. And it comes down to what person are you really targeting? What is the user persona? And there could be several. For example, like Sneak, is it developer, a dev manager? Is it security, the VP of engineering? You've got to think about that granularly to get started. And you need to understand what do they do all day? What is their workflow? And ultimately, the point here is that how do you make that person a hero in the eyes of their boss? You know, that is the key. So many founders that we back usually have a deep understanding of this pain and the priorities around it because this is something they do every day or they live with it every day and they want to solve this problem. So as I think about that persona, when you think about that persona, the other important piece is before you reach out is messaging. Messaging really matters. And, you know, I'm a fan of history and I think Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore is an absolute classic. And if you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. He goes through that kind of that Crossing the Chasm with the beachhead and how to reach early majority and early adopters. But the point here is that this is a great framework to think about your message. And I can't tell you how much time we spend pre and post first check investment on this piece here. And the point is, imagine sending one email, one paragraph on what you do and what the value proposition is. What would that be? And so much thought and feedback goes into this. And if you start here, I think it's a great, great starting point. So for example, for who's your customer? Who, like what problem are you solving and for who? Where does your product fit, you know, in terms of like what aisle, which shelf? It's kind of like, if I know I'm looking for ketchup or mustard, I know to go to the condiment aisle, right? And then within that, you can pick Heinz 57 or Sir Kensington's or some other brand, right? So you have to think about where do you fit so they understand in their minds kind of what budget would they be pulling out of. And then kind of what is it that you do uniquely? What is that breakthrough? I frankly don't want to position against competitors, but you could. But just remember that that's something that you have to think about when you dress later. And then bottom line is, this is what we do for you. And so here's an example of a company that we invested in in Israel about nine months ago or 10 months ago. And, you know, it's an infrastructure company. And sometimes it's really hard to explain what you're doing and for who. And this is like our fifth iteration of this template. But if you think about it here, you can see some of the messaging. It tells you what it is. It tells you what organizations it's going after. It tells you what it does. It gives you the value prop for DevOps. It gives you the value proposition for testers, support, and sales, and ultimately what the value proposition is for the business. So once again, don't take this lightly because this is going to be the key to getting people excited about your product as you reach out. The other thing that's a kind of a trick of the trade and a tool of the trade, and this is for any sales process because I like to invest in companies, free products, like just a slide deck. And I like to say that it's really hard to understand sometimes what the infrastructure is. And I tell founders, like, help people envision the future. Show me the dashboard. Let's work backwards. Show me what it is that you're offering so that I can understand that, hey, this is what I'm going to see. This is what I'm going to use. This is why it's important to me. And then underneath that, you've got the tech sitting behind it. So here's an example of you know, M0, which I mentioned earlier, just showing you what their cost control dashboard looks like and how that works. Or on the right is Fortress IQ, which just raised a $30 million Series B round. And that was their first thing that they showed me and showed their first customer before they even had the product fully built. The whole point here is that eye candy works and visualizations work. You can also use Loom videos or demo videos. But the point is visualization really, really helps bring your infrastructure to life. So let's transition now. You got the messaging down. You've got the one paragraph. You have that picture 
that you're going to leave in the buyer's mind. And so I'd imagine that a lot of the folks here are probably infrastructure founders, probably some SaaS founders. And one thing we think about is, is a sandwich model. And there are two ways to kind of find and go find your first enterprise IT account. That can be top down. So you go directly to a senior buyer through relationships, you know, the same way that you might go approach Guild Angular or myself at Boldstart. You leverage your relationships, your investors, your advisors, a friend of a friend, right? You know, we always like to think about if you can't get to us through a friend of a friend, then how are you going to get to a customer? So that's top down. The second piece is bottom up. It's like evangelism. It's content marketing. And the key here is that it takes a long, long time. And the other part that we think about is that when you're actually taking that first check-in, the time it takes to evangelize a new market or new opportunity, you know, leveraging open source or something, it may be too long before you actually get to an A round, right? So how do you kind of balance that out? Because unless you're in a massive market with a database market and doing 100,000 downloads kind of a month or something, it's hard to really get those bottom-up metrics. So that's why I think the sandwich theory is pretty interesting, right? You build this evangelism from the bottom and you reach top down to get a few customers so that when you go out and raise your A round, you have some proof points. So I like to say kind of hit them high and hit them low, invest in the long-term, but see if you can get some short-term wins. You know, now I just think about versus about 15 or 20 years ago, or even five years ago, the data is everywhere. So if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, like, I don't know anyone, I don't know how to reach out to anyone, I don't have those relationships, just remember that early adopters can be found anywhere. All the speakers that are out there want to be connected with someone, and there's a topic. A lot of our companies will go out and, let's just say, scrape the Kafka Summit on the left, or hit MongoDB Live. That's, that's a customer right there talking about how they're deploying MongoDB. Do a little research on that. You know, look at that speaker list. They all want to network. The other thing that folks do, let's just say you have a Kubernetes company, scrape LinkedIn, look for all the job postings where they're looking for a Kubernetes hire or Kubernetes expertise, put a list of that together, and then start leveraging those emails that I mentioned earlier, kind of that positioning framework to reach out to some of these folks. So the bottom line is just do your work. Job boards are your friend, be scrappy. So once you kind of get their attention, I think the most important point here is you have to actively listen. Too often, I mentioned this earlier, that tech founders only want to talk about their tech. I've got this cool serverless technology, and they can go on and on and on about how fast it is and everything else. But I think you need to rethink your approach when you're having conversations with these folks. You need to ask questions and think about what is it like if I were in their shoes? How do they make decisions? And from that, try to understand, ask a lot of questions. What are their top problems and why? How much pain is there, right? Because if you're number 10 on that list of priorities, you're never going to crack the code there. Maybe you should move on to another account. Maybe you should think about rethinking your value proposition. The bottom line is you have to solve a problem. Don't sell tech. Your tech is that unique insight that enables that. And to that point, this is Dean Delvecchio, who's the CIO of Guardian Life. He keynoted AWS reInvent, I think two years ago with Jassy, talking about how he closed 80 data centers in three months and moved to AWS. But the point is, is that Dean says here, do your homework right? I mean, do the research. It's easy. It's all out there. If you come in and just don't know what you're talking about or don't understand their business, then I think it's, it's a problem. We've talked about messaging. We've talked about how to find some early adopters. Now, how do you actually start transitioning into some type of relationship? And going back to my earlier point, IT buys from people they know or trusted partners. And then you're probably asking yourself, how do I build that trust and rapport? If I don't know them, 
or over Zoom. And I want to just highlight here the first and most important thing, and this is the most important thing as well for any sales process, including you know, reaching out to VCs. Your goal in that first meeting is to get to the next meeting. It's not to close a VC round. It's not to close a sale. As Marty mentioned earlier in that slide from Priceline, don't talk licensing in the first 10 minutes. It'd be the equivalent of talking about valuation with Gil and I you know, in the first 10 minutes of conversation. Don't do that. Get to the next meeting and then the next meeting. So how do you build trust? So they're going to be buying based on you and your ability to solve their problem. The trust kind of in your understanding and that domain expertise and the trust in your ability to build. So my perspective would be, and this works pretty well, is, you know, listen, take feedback, iterate on your product, and then come back to them. Show them what you have heard and learned. You're never going to nail it in that first meeting, especially going for that first customer. But if you show that you have the domain expertise, if you show that you have velocity, if you show how great your team is and that you listened, do that a couple times. It might be a couple iterations where you said, hey, I took your feedback. I incorporated some of that in my product. Come back to them another two weeks later. I added that other piece here. Like now let's start talking about stuff. Set up Slack channels, offer your phone number for real-time messages. Make them feel comfortable that they're betting on you and that you can deliver in a timely fashion. That's the most important thing is because a lot of the time these products are half-baked and lots of my portfolio companies, I've helped a lot of them get their first customer. It's okay. Half-baked stuff is okay, but you have to build that trust and you can deliver and you have velocity and you can build really good software. And that's how you do it. I think if you look at that prior slide from Dean at Guardian, he just said the other way to build that relationship is kind of start small to get bigger, right? Kind of land and expand. And I think the most important thing is you got to narrow the scope. I see too many times founders come in and get very excited and they try to do too much. They want to solve everything. Enterprises don't from, buy from startups to solve every problem. They buy from startups to solve one problem, a narrow problem that you can do really, really well and better than anyone else. And if it's that constrained, then it's something that's easier to take a bet on. So pick a narrow pane, make it easy to say yes. You can always expand that relationship once you're integrated. The other piece is do it quickly. Think about how do you reduce friction to onboard, right? So it's much easier for a SaaS or a bottom-up dev tools company for people to try it out and much harder and top-down. So one thing I would encourage you when you're thinking about top-down is don't require a rip and replace. So maybe think about how do I integrate with the existing systems, even though your long-term strategy might be to replace an existing system. Don't require a forklift upgrade and don't require the enterprise to dedicate too many resources to this, right? You don't want them sucking up time. They don't have enough engineers. They don't have enough people. How do you actually make them spend less time on your project so that you can do it for them? And the final thing I'd say is don't require anything on site, especially in today's world. Create deployable VMs, use products like Replicated, which is in our portfolio. Companies like Tackle.io, which allows you to sit on top of cloud marketplaces. Just find a way and be creative. So this is kind of like the money slide as you think about it. I love this Krusty Krabs piece here. It's hard to compete with free money. So the tried and true question is, do I give it away for free or do I charge for POCs? You know, in a perfect world, I prefer no free OCs, which means charging for the proof of concept. And so, you know, I think having skin in the game from a potential partner, no matter how small a check is, gets their attention. It makes them focus on you. And my point is, don't be afraid to ask. And by the way, this is more for a top-down versus a bottom-up sale, right? Because if it's bottom-up, then people can try out your product. They can expand it within team. 
But, you know, if you're doing bottom up, the only thing I would think about is how do you think about the longer term? How do you convert someone to paying? How do you convert into a larger team or organization sale? So just think about that perspective. But the bottom line here is you have to think about how do I be a partner for some of these enterprises versus selling to them? I just set up just a few points or thoughts, points of friction that we run into sometimes or founders run into when they're actually talking about or thinking about kind of that POC. The one thing I think about is going back to my point is being narrow and focused. Create a statement of work. So usually there's a contract, which is a few pages that spells out the legally binding terms. But then in the back, there's a statement of work. And then that statement of work, it could be one pager and you talk about what deliverables you're going to provide and what the measurable goals are. For example, let's say I'm doing a POC just on a database. And within 30 days, I'm going to migrate X petabytes of data to my data warehouse. And I'm going to provide sub-second, sub-millisecond, 100 millisecond functionality for every query, right? So just have something that's measurable and constrained. The second thing I would say is constrain the time as well. 30 days or less is key, maybe 60 days at most. And you know, this is once again for those top-down sales because these are higher ticket items. People actually want to do bake-offs and want to try things, but you have to have measurable, clear goals. Charge for it. Then the question also is, you know, is there an automatic conversion? Like a lot of times we'll actually think about if I deliver my POC and if I deliver within these values that we both agree on, this is a business value here, then this is what it's going to cost moving forward. And you can maybe flip them into a license, let's just say for $250,000. And for them being the first customer, you know, give them a discount for a year, not for life, <laughs> but for one year at least, like maybe give them 30% off, 40% off. And then what I would do is probably extract some other value from them. You know, will you be a reference? Can I get a case study from you? You know, can I do a few of these things? This is not an exhaustive list, but these are some of the big points that are brought up a lot during these negotiations. But the statement of work is the most important piece that sometimes people miss. And you can't have it be an open-ended, unmeasurable thing. So think about what that means and work with that partner about that. So the bottom line is, when you're actually trying to break into your first enterprise IT account, you notice that this is not about closing your first sale. Nowhere did I mention closing your first sale in this whole kind of talk. The best advice I can give you is don't sell. Think about partnering. We call those enterprise design partnerships. You know, how do you actually get a 25 or 50K check to be a partner for them, right? Maybe you provide some resources. Going back to my earlier points, how are you going to make the buyer a hero? How do you prove that you are the one to deliver? And the most important thing here is remember, they're making an investment, less the dollars, but more from a resource allocation perspective. So you have to think about what people am I reducing for them? You know, how much time am I freeing up for their people? So you got to really think about it from their shoes. You know, for example, some of our best companies actually started where they sent some engineers on site for two or three weeks, two or three days at a time. They actually even had a badge for that company, right? To actually check into the company for two or three weeks. And they lived with their engineering teams to build product. And that further built the relationship. They kind of co-developed the product. And the important point here is that don't worry, you're not building custom software because the smartest CTOs know that, hey, zero customers are better. But at the same time, I'm making a bet on you. And I know that if I ask you to build custom software for me, then you're not a business. And I need you to be a business because I need you to be around forever. So that's kind of the piece here. So you can find early adopters We've done it time and time again. And so these are some of the things that we think about. So that's it here on my side. One question I want to ask you, Ed, is 
just your, your perspective, having done this for a while, how is this sort of art and science of these early enterprise penetrations, how has that changed? If you look at five years ago versus five years from now, how is this changing over time? And, and can you reflect on that a little bit? Is the playbook the same or is it evolving? I think it's definitely evolved. I think five, even seven years ago. First of all, I think there's two trends. One is the trend of every large company going to best or breed or one throat to choke. You know, traditionally it was like Microsoft and IBM and Cisco. And now people know that if they want innovation, that the world is moving so fast, they can work with startups. If you ask a CIO or, or CISO or, you know, head of infrastructure, they don't check their voicemails. <laughs> they barely check their emails because they're inundated with just marketing messages all the time. So if you talk to them, they'll ask their team, they'll do a Google search. So the word of mouth, and then, or they'll talk to a friend. So word of mouth marketing is so important. Owning kind of, if someone's going to search a Google term, let's just say infrastructure as code, like owning kind of one of those top three searches, I think is really important because CIOs will just sit at their desk and search. And then the third part is, I think, Gil, to your point, particularly for infrastructure startups, I think hitting them top down, going back to the sandwich theory, but also having some of their existing folks using the product, right, whether it's open source or something else, is such a good touch point. When the CIO asks one of the heads of engineering if they've heard of this product before, they can say, oh, I love it. Lots of us are using it. So I think the world is changing for the better for startups, actually. Would it be too much to say that a lot of the standard bag-carrying sales guy, field sales force playbook just doesn't work anymore in the environment you're describing? I would say that it still does work. I mean, look, let's talk about top-down versus bottom-up. On the top-down side, I mean, you still need kind of expensive sales folks. I mean, these are big ticket items. I'm talking about 200K starting point price going up to a million to $3 million. I think that's still there. But I think that also the value of being able to land a company and then get to that million or $2 million, I think that's really, really proven. I mean, look at even like a Datadog, their expansion numbers are absolutely insane. My point is that you don't have to start with a million dollar deal. You can actually still figure out how does your product kind of lead the sale, right? How do you make it easy for your product to get into an organization? And then how do you think about your pricing so that you can actually expand with volume or usage or, or some other metric? Another question also sort of to bring the time dimension to this. You've worked with first-time founders, you've worked with repeat founders, and you've watched founders grow and evolve into seasoned executives. If you were to sort of compare the way a first-time founder approaches some of these issues and the way some of the best ones approach these issues, what would you say are the differences? What can be learned from the way that more experienced people do this as we try to ramp up early stage founders? What are some of the mistakes they typically make or the errors that they make that end up costing them a lot of time? Yeah, I would say, and I brought some of that up earlier. One is, I would say that the ability to tell a story. So honing that messaging down to the value proposition for the end user, I think is so key. And it sounds so trite in a way, but it's probably the most important thing. It's constantly honing every six months. Good exercise may be Go to the Wayback Machine, the Internet Archives, and just type in a company and look at the messaging on the website over the last five years, right? What did it start with? How did it evolve a year later? How did it evolve a year later? It's really, really interesting and fascinating to see kind of that message. So having the value proposition, not selling tech, that's the number one piece. Two is telling a story. You need to be able to tell a good story going back to that message. And the third point I would say is don't try to sell. If you're trying to get that first IT account, uh, think about how do you partner with them? How do you build that trust, right? Because 
first-time founders may come in and just try to sell something and they're not listening enough. So those would be the three things I would say that really flip the opportunity and make it easier for people. It's almost like founders that think that the skill set they're missing is a sales skill set. In some of these cases, that's not even what it is. It's a partnering and listening skill set that's actually going to be the value driver at that phase. Absolutely. One other question just before we open it up. What is your view on firing customers for these early stage customers? In other words, we have sometimes you have a company that says, you know, I, I wanted to sell, I've got this great customer success tool and they're dragging me towards the product engineering team, or I've got this great dev tool and they're dragging me towards ops. And like, I, I have a great logo and a great engagement and they're even willing to pay me. But what they want to do with my stuff is different than what I'm trying to prove. What is your advice to founders in those cases? And can you give maybe either anonymized or not, maybe some specific examples of some of these more challenging customer relationship issues where you've already invested, you're already in the door and suddenly they want something different from you than what you thought you were there to do? Yeah, I would say that that's a really great question. And I think the most important thing is, is that you need to even say no to a customer before they even become a customer. I think you learn a lot during the process of trying to partner with them and the questions that are asked and who is the person that you actually are interfacing with on a daily basis. If the situation does get sticky, there are certain companies, by the way, this is why not every enterprise is a great, everyone wants that Fortune 500 customer first, but maybe they're not the right one to start with or they might be too big. Maybe you find a medium-sized company that can move faster, like the CTO of a 1,000-person company or a 1,500-person company, not a 20,000-person company, right? Because they can move faster, they're a little more creative. But the point is, yeah, you've got to fire the bad customers because ultimately when a next round, look, at the end of the day, this is all about how do you get your next round, right? Because no one's going to get profitable off this first round for an enterprise startup, at least for the most part. And if you have a customer that's asking you to do custom one-off creations that don't help your product roadmaps. Here's a great example. A great example would be you're hanging out with a customer and they ask you to build something and it's on your product roadmap for Q4 and not for now. So you ask yourself, gee, you know what? That's on my roadmap anyway. I can close this customer and maybe I'll speed up that function or that feature. But if someone asks you for something that is only specifically for them or maybe you know that has zero value for anyone else outside of that company, you have to say no. You've got to say no to that feature. And that goes back to my earlier point to like Marty at Priceline. Like he's a guy that basically says, look, I will not ask you to build anything custom for me because once you start going on that custom path, they will not be able to raise their next round of funding. Then you're basically a professional services software development shop for someone else, right? You have to avoid that. You need to make sure that it's not a market of one, that's a market of many each time you make that decision for what to build for that first customer. And if, and if it's not solving that problem, then you've got to just say no and fire them. Wonderful. Thank you. So we have a question from Jarek, who's a VP of sales from Poland. And he's asking, in terms of getting your first enterprise account in the US, does the strategy differ for European startups compared to US-based startups? I would say no, unless it's just basically a little bit harder. So the one thing that I would think about, though, is that if you are going after a larger organization, they're going to think about how do I have local support or someone more local if it's a larger sale. Like Pivotal Software, for example, when they first got out to market, I was an investor in Green Plum, which became Pivotal. But when they got their first few customers, the product wasn't fully, fully baked, but they would send two or three engineers living on site to help kind of get that stuff implemented to work. So if you're in Poland and you have someone super, super interested and they're asking about global support, you'd be like, look, I'll send one of my folks over. They'll be close enough where they can answer your problems quickly. 
right? And obviously in the world of COVID, it's a little bit different, but you know, pre-COVID, it's basically like I could just send someone, we could spend two weeks, three weeks, four weeks living with you to solve that problem. Wonderful. So now we're joined by Ian. Ian, if you could please introduce yourself and then ask your question. Hi, this is Ian from Ireland. Kind of going back to the point you made there about partnerships, we have a, we're building a, a SaaS communications platform for companies to manage projects, customers, and teams. Originally, when we first came up with our project, we found out that a potential customer owns that domain, but they're not using it. So from your point of view, if somebody came to you and said, we'd like to make contact with them, we'd love the domain, we want to work with them, offer them a service, how would you recommend we approach that? Can you give me a more specific example? I'm, I'm not understanding the Yeah, question. so the, the platform is to connect different okay. people, create teams, create projects so that they can communicate, you know, so they can focus on specific problems or whatever their business is about. Yep. The branding that we were working on is to do with the word connect. Okay. When we did the search to see who owned the domain, a number of domains, one of them came up as a large multinational company that has offices in probably 50, 60 places around the globe that could potentially use a platform like us. Okay. But they own the domain. They're only using it as a redirect right now. So we think there's a potential to work with them and see if they'd be interested in letting us work with them on the basis of giving us the domain we give them a service. Yeah. So usually you need to figure out who is the owner of that domain. A lot of time it's legal, right? So I would just try to figure out how do you we know who owns the domain? Okay. Got it. So you should just figure out every way, which way possible to reach out to them to see if you can strike a business relationship and figure out how you can maybe barter for services or, or something like that. Right. That's the best thing I can tell you. Wonderful. So now we will take a question from Peter. Hi, this is Peter Parks from Qualdesk. In the context of a bottom-up POC or kind of sales opportunity, and I guess I probably used the killer wrong word there, but in terms of the, you touched on this a little bit in that kind of sales versus partnering discussion earlier, but I just wonder in the context of a bottoms-up situation where you perhaps you've got into one team and you want to get to team two or team three or team five, what are some of the best and worst approaches you've seen to kind of make that leap from a kind of organic evangelism perspective? Yeah, so I think the most important part is that your product has to lead the adoption. And so I'll give you a good example, like Elasticsearch. I remember that a friend of mine was heading up sales there. They ended up having eight different groups within you know, a large bank using it before that person, the sales rep, went to kind of the CIO and said, hey, I can save you a ton of money because of this. We recently had Kristen Haybacht, who is head of one of the heads of enterprise sales at Atlassian. Before that, she was head of enterprise sales at Trello. And once again, what she did was that she would map out, literally, like just say there's four different groups in the organization and show up with a map and saying, hey, you're already spending this much money here. Like, why don't we talk about something bigger? So I guess my point is that you can't force one group to another group, to be honest with you. The product has to do it. You can only do it after you have two or three or four groups going and hit the top down piece. So you need to organically build that in your product. And if it's frictionless, if there's viral hooks in it or 
ways to share dashboards or whatever that is, it has to be product driven first, to be honest with you. And then you can go in once a few teams are using it, but you can't go in up, the, up at the top unless you know someone really, really well and say, hey, one group's using it and why don't you have 50 groups using it, right? It has to start with the product. We have an anonymous question, Ed, but it touches on something that, that we think about a lot. And, and the question kind of, it talks about budgets and how to think about enterprise budget cycles, who has a budget. I need to have a fraud. If I'm selling something, I need to make sure I know who owns that budget. I need to make sure there is a budget for it, right? And sometimes I'm inclined to say, well, if it's that valuable and from the partnership perspective you spoke about earlier, you build those partnerships, they will find a budget, they will figure it out eventually. And sometimes I feel like, well, actually, no, that stuff is pretty important. If there's no budget, there's no budget. What is your advice to founders when they start to think about identifying the budget line item and figuring out the budget cycles and the budgeting process and timing of stuff like that? It can become overwhelming if you're trying to figure out your own product and someone else's budget process at the same time, Uh right? Yeah, I'll give you a great example. I mean, first of all, you need to know what general category you're in. But I remember uh, Security Scorecard when we invested in the company. And what they do is they provide third-party vendor risk ratings, security ratings, so that the belief is that you're only as secure as your partners who are touching your systems. And clearly, the budget is going after security. And the other budget could be going after vendor risk management for the people kind of analyzing that. But, you know, there's no budget for this company. There's no line item at all, right? So a lot of times you're creating new categories. There's no line item, but you know the broader kind of perspective of where it is. And, you know, it took three or four years before Gartner even recognized the ratings category as a budgeted line item. So my point is that, so what we did is we sold to the CISO. And we know the CISO has discretionary operating budgets, operating numbers, right? There is a discretionary pocket of capital that they might use for people, they might use for other things. So what we did was we went and convinced them that they would need less people if they used our product. So it came out of their people operating budget, you know, from that perspective. And we showed that we could help security folks do more with less. That was kind of the point. And then a lot of times you create new categories, you know, the general pocket of budget, but there's no line on them. It's not like a line on for firewall or network security or something like that. So you got to think about what other pockets are there. And there's always different pockets. There's a people pocket, right? So how do you help people do more with less? Because a lot of times they still have lots of open recs to hire people and just came and find them. So if you can get some of that out, which goes back to my point earlier, maybe someone costs, you know, $150,000 as a full-time kind of equivalent. And you charge them 25K and put three of your best engineers in who are better than any talent they could ever get to help build some software that they really need. That's a strong, strong sale and value proposition going back to the design partnership story. So I guess the point is that there's a lot of times there isn't a budget, especially for new categories, but there is discretionary dollars at work and you need to know how to ask for it. On a related note, we have a company in our portfolio that, you know, will come back to us and say, well, we have, our product is relevant to multiple departments. There are multiple potential buyers for this product. And they've actually had VCs tell them, well, we don't want to invest in you because we can't identify a single buyer. And the company's like, well, this shows that we have a huge category and huge potential in many ways of getting to market and lots of potential customers. And sometimes they're getting a message that, well, if you don't have one buyer, you're clearly not focused enough. How do you think about that kind of question specifically of multiple buyers? And as a VC, how do you think about the buying budgeting dynamic? Or do you look at just the product and the founders and you'll, you figure that stuff will work itself out? Yeah, I think that's a great question, though. Because I think about how many decision makers are there and where does the dollars come from? Like, for example, in M0's case, right, there's head of cloud, there's head of infrastructure, there's head of DevOps, there's sometimes head of security, 
right? And so I think the first thing we need to think about is who are you selling to? Like, where's the value proposition as a product for? And then who has the budget? And so, you know, for us, I think we narrowed it down to it's got to be the head of DevOps. They have the budget, but it's going to have approvals from security and finance, right? So I think what scares people sometimes is that when there's multiple departments or groups to go after, it says that you're not focused or the value proposition is not tight enough. And then two is, it's just that the decision-making process will take too long. The more people that are involved in a decision, the longer it will take to get an answer. And so I've seen so many times where a company comes in and sells some infrastructure product, but they security needs to approve it, or maybe it comes up partially out of the security budget, right? And that becomes a big problem. So if you constrain who the buyer is and how many decision makers there are and you know by the department, I think it makes it much easier to start that way and then eventually expand over time. How early should a company start thinking about sales repeatability and how do you know that you've got it? Well, how early they should think about it? I, you know, the, the first four, five, six customers usually comes from relationships or people that they know. Sales repeatability, in my mind, is super important. And you don't have to have that proven for an A round, depending on who you are, what category you're going after, and what your software is. But I think about it when you get your first five to 10 cold inbound relationships and close those deals, I think it is a good sign that your content marketing machine is working, that some of your marketing is working, that that people are coming inbound that don't know you. And so I think when you expand from the people that know you to the people that don't know you, and then you can quantifiably say, like, as I invest dollars here in, in marketing, you've got to look at your funnel, right? I'm investing dollars here, and this is everything that it's producing, and then eventually, here's a sale. But yeah, it's a much longer question, I guess, is the answer. Awesome. We're now joined by Amit. So Amit, if you could please introduce yourself, and then go ahead and ask away. Hi, this is Amit Karen from CyberMed in Israel. Thanks for all the great points. I think you, you related to most of my question just now in what Gil asked. So maybe just add a short point there. If you recognize a pain, but it is not within anyone's KPIs, would you still pursue it or would you try and reframe it at a different time or or different way? I would make sure that an audience of one is not the answer. So maybe make sure that you have talked to enough people, maybe talk to 20 people. And if 19 of 20 people don't think the pain is big enough, then maybe it's not the right thing. But if it's, you know, 10 people think it's big enough and 10 don't, then maybe it's still worth pursuing, right? Depending on how big the opportunity is. So I guess it just depends on how many people you talk to, right? Just because, you know, sometimes if you're only talking to a few folks, they may have other priorities or other things that are top of mind for reasons that we don't even know. I fully agree. The question is, as you said, for new things, they don't have KPIs defined. How would you frame it in that case, even if you have, let's say, 10 go-aheads? Well, from my perspective, it would be that there's no KPIs defined. You need to understand how much of a, what priority, where does it fit? You know, is it a priority one, two, or three, or is it kind of eight, nine, or 10? Will they get to it in the future? A good question could be, for example, like I've seen probably six or eight companies doing security for AI models. We reached out to some of the top leading organizations out there in the forefront of machine learning. They said, hey, we know it's a problem, but it's not even on our top 10 list. So the question is, are you too early now or not? So I think you need to understand where it fits in their priority bucket and how long do you think that will take. And you need to start with the most mature organizations, for example, who are at the forefront to figure out if it's even on their radar or not, because it's going to take a lot longer for the laggards to kind of catch up to that. And you need to make a decision around that. Super. Thanks a lot. Great. Thank you. We'll now be joined by Robert. Hi, everybody. Robert down here from Brazil, Sao Paulo. 
I'm the creator of Decimals. I'm the CEO. And a question I have is around like creating the bottles of motion for a product that's pretty strategic. How can you create a developer, generate value for developers so that you can get into the enterprises? Like say for a product like Stripe or Alpha Zero, these are like big structural projects for enterprise. Do you have any thoughts on how can you generate value for developers so they start using it and maybe think of using it for their work? Yeah, so I think about that question as where are all the developers located right now? And I think about it like open source as a good mechanism for marketing. And so I, I think that you've got to find a narrow, narrow problem that you're solving to help developers do something faster, better, or easier. And I think if you can leverage kind of some open source capabilities, get some product out there, a lot of people go to Hacker News and throw some stuff out there. And it's, this takes time to do. I just want to remind you that, I mean, it even took Sneak a, a couple of years to even evangelize kind of why security was important for developers, right? So it's going to take some time to kind of build that motion up, but you need to go where the communities are. Or for example, let's just say I'm doing something in infrastructure as code, you know, well, guess who, what people think about it. They think about HashiCorp. HashiCorp's got a big open source community there. Maybe you can think about what framework or what kind of little product can I push out to that community to make it easier for them to do something, right? So I think you got to start really, really small and go where existing developers are, you know, communities and target them. And then from there, you can start building your own name and go from there. Cool. Thanks. Awesome. We're now joined by Iran. Iran, if you could please introduce yourself. Hey, Ed. My name is Iran Gobiner. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Specto, an Angular Ventures company. We're an early stage company in the world of developer tools for microservices. And my question is mainly around uh, positioning. Often when we develop something new, we don't find ourselves into a known bucket or a known category, like, you know, monitoring or logging or whatever. So how much you would recommend to, in a sense, force ourselves to be in a known bucket so it would be easier for the target customers to understand what budget to allocate, to understand where you fit compared to saying, hey, I'm doing here something new. I'm not replacing anything. I'm creating something new here. I think that's the question that you need to think about is like, are you creating a new category? And if so, does that really make sense? Or are you actually just making something better that exists today? I mean, from my perspective, I mean, I love creating new categories. And the, only, the, the trick, though, is just making sure you understand that there's a broad enough budget from which you can go after. I mean, if you have a key value proposition where you understand what the pain is and you know where the pain is, it doesn't matter what category you're in. Because I guess I don't want to confuse yourself with thinking about categories right now. Thinking about the pain. Here's a pain. No one's solving it. And usually, you know, the best companies are companies that are going after do-it-yourself problems. Like a lot of the biggest problems, in the, as you know, in the tool space and the developer tool space are large companies kind of piecing things together themselves, right? Do it yourself. And yeah. you're coming in and kind of automating that and piecing it together, right? So, you know, I would focus more on the pain and the problem, especially in the early days versus the category itself. I mean, you know what category is. I'm a developer tool. You're probably increasing developer productivity, right? I mean, that's pretty general in there. There's money for that. So, so focus on the pain itself and, and why they can free up their resources to have their engineers build something different, right? More customer-facing stuff versus building their own infrastructure to onboard developers or do things like that. Then you'll figure out the answer over time 
But, you know, it's not for the faint of heart. It takes time to build a new category. I told you that security scorecard, that security range category took three or four years for Gartner to even recognize it. And that's fine. That's exciting. That's what makes like our job so exciting is that creating these new categories, but you have to know it's going to take time. Thank you for that. We're now joined by Peter. Peter, if you could please introduce yourself. Yeah, hi, I'm Peter Gross. I'm the founder of Horizon PPM. It's a project portfolio management tool. I also come from a, a long background of working in large enterprises, investment banks and companies, etc. Now my target market. My question is about credibility. So credibility of the, the team and the product is absolutely key when these large corporates are buying from startups. The question in particular is about, I, I, I've got a conversation later this week with a, a colleague that I worked with many years ago, he's an experienced sales manager. He's sold large-scale products into these sort of investment banks and, and other enterprises before, as potentially joining me on my venture. Do you think that clouds the argument, having that sort of person on board in the early stages? Because, you know, there's a lot of talk about it should be the CEO because that's how he gets the best feedback directly at the front line or having a sales manager in there in the early stages, would that also work? Any thoughts on that? Well, I think what your question really is, is that, you know, people buy from people they trust. And if you have someone that has lots of connections, let's just say, for example, selling into the investment banks and the decision makers there for 15 to 20 years, then, you know, by all means, you should have someone kind of there helping you open the door. But of course, it's going to be you closing the deal with that. I mean, that person's going to open the door you're going to come in and talk about your vision and the product, and then they'll probably help you execute that sales contract. But if, if that's helping you open the door, do everything you can to open the door. And you know, a lot of times, to be honest with you, we may not even hire that person. We just might do a consulting contract for a few months and pay them a commission or something to get started to see, see how that goes. But the point is, is, yeah, if you can find out ways to open the door in your top-down sale and you can build trust faster then great. But you have to still be able to sell that vision and product yourself. So I lost you a little bit there. But yeah, I think that I think we're in agreement. I think, you know, the, the thing really that you hear is that my own thinking was, you know, maybe do it on a commission only basis or something like that, just to see how it works out without any commitments on either side is probably the right way, because that way I can leverage it without any uh, unnecessary baggage, as it were, as we go forward until we're all happy with where it goes. Exactly. Because a lot of times what happens is if you hire, let's just say, a top-down person, you know, six months later, your product might have changed and you might have a different type of product. Maybe it's bottom-up yeah. now. So it's too too early to make those decisions unless you get a few folks buying from you. Brilliant. Thanks very much, Ed. Appreciate that. Yep. Wonderful. We're now joined by Bensi. Hi, I'm Bensi, the founder of Perflow. My question relates to when you're approaching for a pilot and setting up KPIs and you're still validating your use case for the product. So you, let's say you're a productivity tool and you want to say that, oh, we'll increase productivity by 20% or 30%, but that's not proven out. Is it a risk creating these KPIs that potentially you won't meet and you're managing expectations? You're taking a big leap of faith by putting a quantifiable number? Yeah, I would say that productivity is one of those things that's super, super hard to measure in a, in a way, to be honest with you. And that's a hard sale. I mean, everyone's trying to sell this productivity sale. Are there other metrics that are you know very clear and there's no debate over that you can actually you talk about it? Maybe is it number of, I don't know, contracts processed? I, I don't know what kind of productivity tool you have, number of conversations had, or just something else that's more of a tangible metric versus 
I save, or if you can actually truly say, like if you're an RPA player, you can actually truly say that you saved X hours of time with a bot, right? So I'm just trying to figure out something that is tangible. There's no argument about, you know, what the answer is and something that you could control and measure. You know, I think that's the most important piece, but everyone sells a general productivity sale. You actually have to narrow that much further. Is there another unit that you can think about? Thanks. Cool. Just before we wrap it, there's one, one more question that Mark is asking. Do you value depth of engagement with customers or number of engagement with customers? I know as, as a VC, you probably see companies coming to you with both things, but how do you weigh those? Yeah, for me, the most important thing I think about is what I want to understand is if a customer can live without this product or not, right? So if you have 10 folks that maybe bought your product or are working with you, but then you know, it's not a daily part of their life or it's not a must-have or... You know, I think it's more important to show that, you know, I'd rather have two or three, you know, super interesting customers that are using this all the time and actually love and love the product and can't live without it, you know, that you make them a hero than having 10 where they just check in every couple of weeks and it's kind of there and blah, blah, blah. Because what that tells me is that, you know, maybe they'll be churned in the future or whatnot. So you, you got to get your first few customers who are absolute advocates for your product and love it. And so I think depth of engagement, depth of interest, and if they're not like that, then figure out how you can make your products more valuable to them and learn from that because that is, that is the beginnings of a great company. Right. It, it sounds, the more I listen to you, the more it sounds like relationship advice. Learn to listen, make them feel yeah. their pain, make them love you, love them back. Don't yeah. be too transactional. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, totally. Um, Ed, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for going over time as well. Really, really enjoyed having you. And any of these founders who are coming through New York or even not coming through New York, I know Ed and Elliot and the team at Bullstart have looked aggressively for opportunities in Europe. We hope you would take your company to Angular as well, but we definitely recommend that you talk to Bullstart. They're, they're truly fantastic. We were, we were thrilled to have you here, Ed, and look forward to many more years of working together. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Thanks.